the pulpit was Rick's idea. He was like, do you guys ever use that? And I'm like, oh, only for special occasions. And I realized, yeah, this is Sunday Christmas. So you kind of escalate it. So today's the pulpit, which is going to bring, obviously, a different level of weight and authority to my message. Um, and then tomorrow night, it's kind of the double whammy because you get the pulpit and me in a shirt and tie. So that's, I'm just, I'm just saying, there's only a Christmas Eve. And Easter is where I wear the tie, but everything has to be a slow escalation to that point. I'm going to be reading, I have three scripture readings this morning to introduce our Christmas message. I'm going to be reading from the book of Genesis, from the book of John, and from the book of Luke. So it might be hard to follow along in your Bible. Um, And if you're not uh, skilled with jumping back and forth, you can just follow along on the screen. Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. John 1, 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And then Luke 2, verses 1 to 11. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. And this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, and he is the Messiah, the Lord. As more and more people live with only a very vague understanding or cursory exposure to the Bible, uh, Christmas will increasingly be viewed as confusing at best and absurd at worst. What's the big deal, our friends and neighbors are saying? Why has so much celebration and joy been invested in this particular holiday? And really beyond a kind of cultural, sentimental traditionalism, why should I care? And if you find yourself confused but curious about Christmas this morning, if you're curious about its significance for your life and your future, then this morning I want to help you better understand the glory of Christmas by understanding the logic of Christmas. And I'm using logic pretty intentionally here, uh, not only because I want to help us to see how the Christmas event makes sense from a rational perspective, but also because logic, or logos, lies at the heart of the biblical story and indeed the Christmas story. This is what I mean by that. When you look at the two main creation narratives in the Bible, Genesis 1 and John chapter 1, Listen for what unites these together. Again, Genesis 1, 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And now John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Notice that in both creation accounts, God creates through his word. And although it's veiled in Genesis 1, John 1 makes it very explicit. The word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. And the Greek word that is translated in our Bibles as word is logos. But to simply translate it as word is a slight diminishment because the Logos refers to a kind of divine principle, a capital W word that stands as the foundation upon which all of reality is built. Jewish theologians and Greek philosophers had different ways of understanding this Logos. They had different thinkers and theologians who said, well, the nature of everything must come from something, that's God, but how did God create? Upon what did God create all that is? And they kept coming back to this concept of the logos. But one of the things that neither Jewish theologians nor Greek philosophers could anticipate is what we discover in John chapter 1. That the logos is not merely a principle. It's a person. And then in John 1.14, we read what happens to this logos at Christmas. The logos, the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And so Jesus, in his incarnation, is the divine Logos. He's the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He's co-eternal, which means he wasn't, uh, he didn't, um, he wasn't created by the Father. He is co-eternal. And he's the conduit of creation. Through the word Jesus, all things were made, visible and invisible. And so the story of Jesus doesn't actually begin at Christmas. And you have to keep that in mind, otherwise the glory and significance of Christmas will be lost to you. And the logic of Christmas won't connect So let's think about the biblical story. In the beginning, in and through Jesus, the Father creates all things. And he creates humanity, male and female, to uniquely bear his image. Reason, consciousness, free will, imagination, to no other creatures were these gifts given. Now time out, I know at this point, as 21st century individuals, we, the gears in our minds can go off because we move into Genesis 1 and our, and our minds go directly to what's the mechanism of creation? How did it happen though? Six days, a bunch of eons, that's kind of theistic evolution. I want you to suspend those questions, not because they're unimportant, but because they're inconsequential to the theological trajectory of what I'm talking about this morning. Just suspend it and understand the theological truth that you are being confronted with this morning. The scripture is not big on getting into the mechanisms of how God created. It's that he created and through whom he, who, 
through whom he, he created and what should our response should be. So he creates humans, male and female, and he calls Adam and Eve to be image bearers. He places his image on them. And he wants them to faithfully and fully develop the potential of this garden that they're placed in, but eventually the whole world. The garden is a training ground to go out into the rest of creation and bring forth its potential and be gardeners developing the potential of creation for God's glory and for their enjoyment. And they exist in this uninterrupted communion with God, with their creator. They're united with him through love and trust. And then in his book on the incarnation, the early church father Athanasius says, he set them in his own paradise and laid upon them only a single prohibition, only one rule within paradise, Genesis 2. The Lord God commanded Adam, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat, for when you eat from it, you will surely die. Athanasius says, so their calling was clear. If, they, if Adam and Eve guarded the grace and retained the loveliness of their original innocence, then the life of paradise would be theirs without sorrow or pain or care and after it the assurance of immortality in heaven. But if they were to stray and become vile and corrupt, throwing away their birthright of beauty, then they would come under the natural law of death and no longer live in paradise, but dying outside of paradise move into ever-increasing death and corruption. And if you know this story, you do know that it takes a tragic turn. In Genesis 3, we read that the serpent, who is the enemy of God, the great accuser, Satan, comes to the woman, and he begins to undermine the trustworthiness of God. Did God really say, you must not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said, no, no, we, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You're certainly not going to die, the serpent said to the woman. See, God knows that when you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You will know good from evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And in Romans chapter one, this event is kind of placed over the, um, the story of all of our lives as a prototype for what we have all done. This is the pattern that each one of us has lived into. We see in the first fall, capital F, fall from grace, all of our failings and failures to trust God and to decide, mm, maybe God is holding back the good life from me. Maybe I do know better than God. Maybe it's wiser to do what is right in my own eyes. Did God really say these things? Can I trust him? Romans 1 says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave, th gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened and they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And so the first image bearers decide to choose to live outside of God's grace and care and truth and to live on their own terms. They've been given this kingdom of God and they say, thanks but no thanks, we would like to make this in our image. 
and they choose to define what's right and wrong for themselves, and they choose to reject God's word, and they choose to live and to do what seems right in their own eyes, to live with themselves on the throne of their hearts and on the throne of their wills. And of course, the fallout is sweeping, and it's very, very brutal. Shame, guilt, alienation, disconnection, betrayal, mistrust, deception, and that's just the first generation. Next generation, violence, murder, resentment, idolatry. Corruption spreads from individuals to families to communities to nations. The first 11 chapters of Genesis document this descent into chaos as humans slowly create a hellscape where God had given them paradise as a gift. Athanasius again, he writes, Humanity had gone on gradually from bad to worse, not stopping at any one kind of evil, but continually, as with an insatiable appetite, devising new kinds of sins. Adulteries and thefts were everywhere. Murder and raping filled the earth. Law was disregarded in corruption and injustice. All kinds of iniquities were perpetrated by all, both individuals and in common. Cities warred against cities, nations rising up against nations. The whole earth was rent with factions and battles, while each strove to outdo each other in wickedness. And if you think that's hyperbolic, if you think that's a gross exaggeration, then might I submit to you that simply because you live in a context where if you choose, you can wall yourself off in some ways from the utter corruption and evil that exists in the world in our cultural context. I do not think you can live very long with your eyes wide open without seeing this cycle into darkness playing out in the world and maybe even playing out in your own life and in your own heart. Athanasius again, because death and corruption was gaining ever firmer hold on men, the human race was in a process of destruction. Man who was created in God's image and in his possession of reason reflected the very word himself. And this man was disappearing. The image of God was being so corrupted you couldn't see the goodness anymore. And the work of God was being undone. And the promise of death, which followed from the transgression, prevailed upon us. And from it, there was no escape. And Athanasius brings up this really interesting point where he says, if you understand this plot line of the Bible, you understand that at this point, humanity's rebellion left God with a choice between something unfitting and something monstrous. Humanity's rebellion leaves God with a choice between something unfitting and something monstrous. It would have been unthinkable and unfitting to the integrity of God, to his holiness, that God, seeing humanity's rebellion, should go back on his word, and even though mankind has transgressed, they don't need to die. They don't need to face judgment. They don't need to face condemnation. It's not a big deal. Such an act would undo the integrity of God. God is faithful to all his promises, even the promises whose outcomes are condemnation and death. But it's equally monstrous that human beings who were created to share a special place of prominence within creation and um, with God 
should just be allowed to cycle forever and ever into greater and greater destruction and ultimately into spiritual obliteration and death. This course of action or inaction where God just kind of walks away and let, lets everything unravel, lets evil and sin and human wickedness just build and, and snowball into the horizon of the future contravenes God's character to do justice and to have mercy and to extend grace. And it would open God were he not to take action and not to judge. It would open God to the charge of at least negligent malevolence that God is playing a fiddle while the world burns. So what was God who is supremely good to do? What is God going to do in a way that holds together the fact that he has to keep his promise to judge human evil and humans have to be under the sentence of death but also to intervene in a way that his, so that his entire creation isn't lost to the powers of sin and death. How could God keep his promise to judge and condemn human evil which is the right and good thing for God to do and provide a way to punish and destroy sin without destroying sinners and without destroying humanity. And this is the genius of the incarnation. John chapter one, the word becomes flesh and he makes his dwelling among us. The logos, Jesus, becomes flesh, human. God takes upon himself full humanity while retaining his divinity. He's fully God, and now he becomes fully human. And so in one person, never to be repeated again, you have Jesus, who's sometimes called the God-man. Fully God, fully human. Not half and half, not different percentages. Fully God and fully human. And his mission is compelled by love. He's come to solve the problem of how to judge and condemn sin and evil while at the same time providing a mechanism for salvation from condemnation and destruction and reconnection and restoration with God, both now in this life and in the life to come. Now you may ask, why does Jesus need to come as a man? Why doesn't God just come, just appear I'm God, like an angelic vision, like the angels to the shepherds. I'm a supernatural being. Here I am. I'm God. I'm going to die on the cross. I'm going to go through all what I need to go through. Jesus has to come as a fully human being so that in his humanity, he can offer a human sacrifice for human sin. God says if humans rebel, humans need to be judged. Jesus comes as a man to ensure that the judgment against human evil would be taken into a genuine human being. We read about in the New Testament that all the sacrifices in the Old Testament, they don't actually atone for, th- for sin. No animal sacrifices or scapegoats could kind of hand wave atonement away because something non-human can't pay the judgment for human rebellion. In order for God's word to remain true, Judgment against human sin has to be absorbed into a truly human being. Why does Jesus need to come as God? Why not just be a man and just a man? Fully human, but not fully divine. 
Well, he needs to come as fully God so that in his divinity, he could offer a sacrifice that was perfect and eternal in its metaphysical nature so that he could only offer one sacrifice which could cover the sins of the world. A real human sacrifice, but in his divinity offering something perfect and eternal in nature so that only one ultimate sacrifice could be made. And think about it this way too. The Bible says the corruption that came about because of Adam and Eve's sin entered into not just the human heart, but all of reality. The curse is found in every dimension of reality. Who would be able to deal with the corruption of sin? Who would be able to deal with the full scope and scale of sin's corrupting presence? What, what person, what, who, who could do it? The only person who could do it would be the Logos. The Logos through whom all things were created is the only mechanism ontologically significant enough to provide an atonement that covers not a part of creation, not a fraction, not a percentage, not most of it, but all of it. So the word has to become flesh, fully human, fully divine, so that the entire scope of redemption can be enacted. Only the word of God who created all things could be capable of offering a sacrifice that holds the promise to redeem all things. And lastly, so why does Jesus need to come as a baby? Why not just like, poof, I'm like 33 years of age, here I am, real human, touch me, skin, fully God, I'll just jump on the cross, do my thing, resurrect, we're all good. It's not going to work that way. Because in order for Jesus to enter into full humanity, he has to enter into full humanity. He didn't just descend and kind of put on skin for the day and play dress-up human. That's not full humanity. Instead, he comes into creation through a virgin so that he breaks the lineage of original sin. He develops as a child in his mother's womb. He's born, he grows up, he matures. He fulfills God's commands to his people, both in the letter of the law and in the spirit of the law. He fulfills it, he says. He shows us what it is to love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He fulfills it perfectly so that he could suffer unjustly for the sake of others. Because if Jesus had been sinful even to a small degree, any punishment or judgment that would have come upon him would have been just. It would have been the right thing to happen. He just would have joined all the other fully human people who should have been judged because of sin. So it's only a spotless, sinless lamb, a true human who's fully divine, who has perfectly fulfilled the law and is entitled in the language of the law, for all the blessings that come from the fulfilling the law, but none of the curses, only that person could say, I'm going to offer myself in exchange for someone else. I'm going to take the collective sin of you. I will take that into myself, and I will 
give to you the blessing and benefit of my faithful obedience. Only a fully human being who has walked the walk of humanity, not for a day, not for a year, but for a lifetime, and has done so perfectly fulfilling all of God's instructions, both in the letter and in their spirit, would be able to offer a sacrifice like that. Athanasius says, when you understand the incarnation from this perspective, when you understand Christmas from this perspective, I love his language. He says, Christmas, this event, is a work that is supremely worthy of the goodness of God. It is an act that reveals the baby in the manger to be both Lord and King, but not just any king, a king who founded a city, but instead of neglecting it when corruption takes hold, when the carelessness of its inhabitants allows robbers and murderers and plunderers to just have free reign, a king who avenges and saves the city from destruction. And see, this is why Christians sing at Christmas and indeed all year round. This is why Christmas is a big deal and should be understood as such for every single person. This is why Christmas is good news of great joy for all people because through his birth and life and death and resurrection, Jesus, the Logos made flesh, has put an end to our spiritual death sentence, which barred our way to God. And he has made possible a new life and eternal future for those who receive the gift that only the Logos, only the Word, can give. Only the Logos, who created, was the conduit of the creation of all of life, can give an offering eternal life. See, that's the logic of Christmas. The Logos becomes fully human in order to provide a way for sin and evil and corruption to be defeated through the cross and resurrection so that those who are deserving of condemnation and rejection could be offered an opportunity for redemption and hope and restoration and forgiveness and ultimately eternal life. And I hope understanding the Christmas event from kind of inside the biblical story. I hope that makes sense. And if it does, good. But if it does, I also want to press and say, that's not where I want to leave you. Because the logic of Christmas can't just be something that's up here and you're like, oh yeah, I totally get it. That's kind of interesting. Hmm, kind of a neat little philosophical way of coming about things. The glory of Christmas has to take root in your heart. See, understanding the logic of Christmas does not save you. It does not deliver you from sin's power, from God's condemnation. The only thing that can do that is by entering into a relationship with the Logos himself. Because he is the only word, he is the only Logos that has the authority to speak words of your sins are forgiven over you. He is the only one who speaks with a binding divine authority to proclaim that your past, your sin, your shame, your brokenness, your failures, your spiritual ugliness, whatever language you want to use, whatever dimensionality of your corruption and sinfulness and brokenness and weakness before God, 
He is the only word that can remake your life from the ground up by speaking God's truth and grace into it with binding authority. And see, that's how Christmas can transform you. Not because it's just a compelling truth, but because Christmas points you towards the one who can save and deliver you from condemnation and lead you into eternal life. This Christmas, this Christmas really can be the start of a new beginning where you can be rescued from the corrupting power of sin that is at work in your life. But only in and through the grace and power of the logos of God. Only in and through Jesus. Let's pray. Thank you for Christmas. Thank you for a love that doesn't abandon us to the grave and to death. Thank you for hope that stretches beyond the horizon of this world, God. And I pray that as we sing to you, we would sing through heads that understand and grasp the depth and glory of Christmas, but also from hearts that are surrendered to you. And may we sing these songs in praise to you, but also in witness to each other. May the glory of Christmas shine anew and afresh on our hearts and imaginations, God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.